Global Diplomacy Lab. Coffee Break. With Khaldun Asadi. Welcome to the GDL Coffee Break podcast, where we introduce you to the work and ideas of inspiring experts within the Global Diplomacy Lab Network. This episode again will be packed with insight into the work routines, perspectives on global challenges and sources of inspiration from our wonderful guest. Enjoy your coffee or whatever hot or cold beverage you prefer along the way and please consider the show notes as they provide further information on the topics raised. With me today is Mahmoud Javadi. He is an AI governance researcher at Erasmus Rotterdam University and a postgraduate researcher at the European University Institute in Florence, Italy, where he studies technology governance in Europe. Before he was joining the EUI, he worked with various research think tanks in Iran, where he produced policy papers and briefs on European foreign security and defense policies in the Middle East. He was also a research assistant at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, where he conducted background research on EU policies in the Middle East. It's good to have you on board, Mahmoud. Thanks for having me, Khaldo. Let's start with work routines. So in this segment, we want to know how does someone like you, especially who works on AI governance uh, at the Erasmus Rotterdam University, but is also working in Italy or for Italy for the European University Institute, how do you structure your workday? Like, how do you get the things done that you need to get done? My work routine. So technology, particularly emerging technology in the field of uh, security and defense policies are somehow a research interest and my research focus for a couple of years. And I'm very happy that I can continue my career path and my research focus at Erasmus University. But right now I am focusing a bit more on conventional aspect of security at the European University Institute in Florence. But I think that all in all, I since my passion and my interest is about technology, emerging technology, whether hard or soft-based technologies, I just try to learn a lot. So I don't see myself as an expert or a person knows about this topic. I'm just see a per, I'm just I just see myself as a person who tries to learn, who tries to cultivate, and also somehow understand the dynamics and also the tech ecosystem globally, but at the same time, and particularly across Europe. So my work routine right now is just learning, learning, and learning. I'm hopeful that in the near future, I can somehow deliver something impactful and useful for my audience who can be European Union institutions, European governments, or maybe international organizations. Yep. I want to push you a bit on the learning part. So you have a topic that you're very much interested in and and uh, you want to dig deeper into it. How do you do that? What does it look like in practice? Well, I think that the main reason to take a deep dive into anything, particularly if you are uh, junior researchers and want to learn something and then to be a social entrepreneur, I think it's just to 
uh, it's somehow a cliche, but I think that you should just read and write. Mm-hmm. I mean, I see a lot of people, particularly young people, who read a lot but don't write. I mean, I think that that's the problem because you can have enormous and massive inputs, but when you don't have output, that's a problem. So I try just to make a balance between these two input and output because I I do not claim that what I write or what I share my thought is perfect, flawless. No, I think I think I am in the learning process, but I need to write. I need to be bold and ambitious. And when I write something, I pitch it to journals, magazines, websites, um, just to receive feedback from different people. Because if you don't receive feedback for your thoughts and you just learn something and you accumulate knowledge with no feedback, then that could be somehow problematic and challenging for you if you want to be a researcher or if you want to see research as your career path. So I think that that balance between input and output is somehow my my tea or my takeaway. And I, I, so far, I've been uh, I'm unhappy with my uh, performance, and I feel that hopefully I'm in the right direction. Oh, that, that's interesting. So, so you actually, let's say, you you read an interesting article on a, on a website or in a journal, you reflect on that, and occasionally you would also write the I don't know the the, the author or the editorial board with your opinion, idea, whatever. Did I get that right? Exactly. I mean, there are right now so many pressing challenges and issues that I think that all people, with no exception, have ideas and perspectives on those challenges. But there are few people that who write about them and share their reflections on them. I think that it's, it's, it's a very good practice and exercise for researchers, students, uh, scholars, just to write. Not write academically for peer-reviewed journals. I think that's great and perfect. And I admire those who write for journals in that level. But I think in the form of op-ed commentaries, blog posts, uh, these, uh, these are great practices. And I think that, uh, so I am one of the few persons that I really enjoy reading blog posts on, on GVL website, but also at the same time, I contribute to the GVL uh, blog post with different ideas and perspectives. When I read uh, I, I cover a topic, then I just try to reformulate it, add my personal reflections, and incorporate those reflections into the text and create something, to my understanding and to my best efforts, original and authentic. So I think that that's, that's nice somehow because you see the outcome. And for me, that's, I can describe it as my, as my child because this is, this is part of me. This is part of my idea and perspective. Mm-hmm. I think it's it's such an important point that you make that, especially in this age of consumerism, we leave very little time on reflecting. And reflecting is also can also be like writing, interacting with others, and discussing issues. And uh, yeah, it's it's like an, a really important point. And, and you mentioned that there are a lot of pressing issues that we need to talk about. What is a global challenge where you would say that's important, maybe it's not given enough attention and that lies at your heart? 
I think there are a great number of pressing challenges within within the realm of technology, the area uh, that I am focusing on now. But I, I think that now it's a good opportunity just to raise another issue, which is my, my interest, and I write about it, and I think a lot about it. And that's uh, human security. Uh, well, I think that human security is greatly under-discussed and uh, somehow unnoticed by states certainly biased states, but at the same time biased scholars and thinkers. Some countries, some organizations, blogs, such as the European Union, is quite capable and I think that it's, it's well equipped to engage in human security, but uh, it does not. And I know why, but I think it's somehow, it's, it's very sad and regretful to see that countries uh, organizations are not really involving in human security. They pay attention to conventional security threats and challenges that I think that's very important. But at the same time, human security, which deals with humans' well-being, safety, and prosperity are sometimes unnoticed. Well, of course, there are some people may counter-argue but I think that when, because I, I take a deep dive into EU uh, human security agenda and I see a lot of potentials, but at the same time, lack of willingness or resolve to take steps in this direction. Uh, can you just define human security? Yeah, sure. Well, human security, briefly speaking, and somehow simply speaking, means that there are humans human, people, individuals, safety are not always uh, good or the, the right direction. Sometimes they are in jeopardy or their, their safety and well-being are at stake. Well, it can be some, there are different causes such as water shortages, such as defrostation, such as, uh, I don't know, heat waves. So these are challenges and concerns that maybe at first sight, people or countries, states, governments do not really pay attention to their implications and impacts on people, on their citizens, but it has impact and sometimes it's quite decisive. Right now, we have a concept uh, called climate migrant or climate refugee. Mm -hmm. I mean, the EU or maybe other countries and regions uh, have faced with uh, refugee issues, migration issues. But right now we have climate, which means that climate and environment cause people move from their country and going to another country or another region. So these are some examples and instances of human security. And I think, again, for example, in the case of uh, refugee and migration, uh, we see that uh, so many attentions are given to the conventional ways, but not really to the climate migrations or any type of migration stems from human security or I, I think I can, we can call it non-conventional security threats, such as climate change. 
it's a really important point that you make about security. What I wonder is, how do you connect this debate about security as an important framing for the challenges ahead with the threat of securitization, uh, which basically means that the state and its means are able to control more and more the lives of uh, their inhabitants? Well, I think that sometimes securitization carries negative connotations, but I think that for human security agenda and for human security issues, really these challenges and the struggles should be securitized, which means that, uh, simply speaking, should be highlighted and find a way to make it a mainstream narrative. Right now, it is not really a mainstream narrative. Other issues, challenges, security challenges and the struggles are, are highlighted and are paid attention. But I think human security should be and must be securitized, not just by the states or regional states, but also by outside powers or powers such as the EU, which is uh, a normative power, but at the same time tries to be a security provider. This is, this is the wars and a statement of senior EU leaders that the EU is, and sometimes they say that EU wants to be a security provider. So if you want to be a security provider, that would be, it's great uh, right now. Unfortunately, we have war in Ukraine and EU wants to force Ukraine, which means that you provide security in the form of different types of assistance, military and non-military. But at the same time, there are other regions and other countries that have those security challenges but are not really securitized or not really highlighted or you cannot find news on, on media and, and report. So you can be a security provider, but it is very important that you, for example, or any other, other, other powers, countries, uh, regions, uh, that has the ambition and desire to be a security provider should also pay attention to a new conceptualization of security. So security right now is not really uh, conventional security, it's, it's different types, it's human security. And also security is not shaped and forced at state level. Now we have regional security, sometimes transnational security. So it's quite diverse and somehow decentered. So for the European Union, uh, as an aspiring security provider, I think that the concept of human security can be a good start for the Union just to show and demonstrate its resolve to be a security provider and even a, a political Europe. Because right now, the concept of political Europe, geopolitical Europe, and etc., are quite catchy and you, you see in different headlines, different leaders talk about this concept. And if they pay more attention and take the concept and the issue, or I can say the challenge of human insecurity into account, then they can find some avenues for you as a political power or as a security provider. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, maybe it's a slightly personal question, but what inspires you to do what you do? Like, what's your personal inspiration to engage in the topics that you're engaging in? Uh, I can say people. I mean, I learned a lot from people uh, surrounding me and also different peoples in different countries. 
that maybe I don't know them or they don't know me personally, but I learned a lot from them. So I think that my source of inspiration is people, the main source. And I just try to cherry pick, just to learn something good from each people. And that's why that uh, despite the fact that my research interest and somehow my career is on artificial intelligence technology, but whenever I have free time, or whenever I have energy, I just try to think, read, and write about human security because I, I really care about people's safety, well-being, and prosperity across the world, but particularly in some regions, such as the Middle East that I come from, that they have enormous conventional challenges, but at the same time, uh, involving not conventional threats and challenges. So when they are my source of inspiration, I try to just return the favor by thinking, providing some recommendations, just to highlight the, the challenges and problems uh, based on my capacity and capabilities in different journals and different media outlets, just, just to raise their voice, their challenges, but not, not just raise their challenges, but at the same time propose some tangible, uh, pragmatic, practical, and somehow feasible solutions and recommendations in order just to alleviate their suffering and their pains. Would it be fine for you to give us an example of an interpersonal interaction that you had, an experience that you had that follows you along the way? Maybe you have, you have something that you can share with us. First and foremost, my, my family, my, my friends, my relatives, all are, are living right now in Iran, in the Middle East. And well, my, my parents are main source of inspiration, not just my, for my career or my thinking, but also for everything. And I'm, I'm deeply grateful uh, to them for everything they have done to me. But also, again, because right now, my country and also other countries in the Middle East uh, and also other regions are facing with, with such somehow non-conventional challenges, such as water scarcity, water shortages, deforestations, heat waves, shortage of rainfall, and, and these climate-focused challenges. It's very difficult for me just to say maybe these people or, or those people. I think that the entire people, when I lived in Iran, I just learned from them, but I saw the, the problem, the challenges. I, I read about their, their, their ordeals and sufferings. So, again, uh, the entire people uh, all over the world, but particularly in the Middle East, that I really, I, I, I see myself as a Middle Eastern person, hmm. and I will see myself as a, as a Middle Eastern person, despite the fact that I right now live and work in Europe. But I think that my fellow citizens and Iranians are somehow source of inspirations for what I'm now doing. Thank you so much for sharing this with us, uh, Mahmoud. And thank you so much for talking to me, to us. And I wish you all the best. Thank you so much, Halu, for this opportunity and all the best to you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the GDL Coffee Break podcast. 
Executive Producers are Nele Finsel and Lea Schindler. Audio Production by Thomas Reintjes. Visual Design by Juli August. Music, Brett, produced by La Crembo. This is your host, Khaldun Asadi, and I hope you tune in next time.